Good afternoon, Dr. Dan Guerra. This is Authentic Biochemistry. It is the 2nd of February and the year is 2022. We're going to start a new topic today and it's going to be on diabetes. Particularly, I'm going to talk about type 2 diabetes. Type 1, of course, is an autoimmune disease associated with the um, destruction of beta cells of the pancreas. Now, I will use a discussion of that only to compare and contrast with the much more prevalent type 2 diabetes, which is directly linked to the obesity epidemic. And um, these um, initial premises I'm bringing up to you, you'll see the scientific research does uh, back up quite significantly. So first of all, I just want to say that one of the key features of type 2 diabetes, just known as T2D, is insulin resistance. Simply that means that there's plenty of circulating insulin is being secreted by the beta cell of the pancreas upon induction, partially associated with high circulating glucose. But the insulin, when it binds to its receptor, and then all of the signaling that happens subsequent to that, which most commonly will result in the movement of glucose transporters like the GLUT4 type that you find in skeletal muscle and adipose tissue to the plasma membrane so the glucose can be taken up. That's called insulin-dependent glucose uptake. You understand? Now, we have talked about this and authentic biochemistry um, multiple times in the past. That was just a very quick summary of what we mean by insulin resistance. Okay. Now, what's associated with at the beginning in terms of diet is a diet that's high in calorically dense foods, but in particular, carbohydrates. Now, you might think that, you, that high lipid would be associated with obesity, and it can be. But high levels of lipid intake actually decreases the amount of de novo lipogenesis in the liver and in the other tissues where lipids are normally synthesized for storage triacylglycerol production. So there's a compensation from lipid intake to lipid production. Whereas when you take in high levels of carbohydrate, particularly glucose, uh, and sucrose, which is a fructose glucose disaccharide, that carbon will ultimately yield uh, triacylglycerol produced in the liver. And that will immediately start causing tissue damage because of storage, uh, longer-term storage of triacylglycerol in the liver. That can generate a fatty liver, right? Okay, so high levels of carbohydrate or even high levels of protein in the diet, and to some extent also high lipid, will start to produce increases in insulin production in uh, the system from the pancreas. So, but the carbohydrate is what induces this induction of insulin secretion. So because of the high levels of circulating glucose and the high levels of circulating insulin, the cells eventually become resistant to insulin because the number of receptors that are on the surface of the uh, myocytes or the adipocytes gets diminished. Those receptors are pushed back down into the cytoplasm for degradation via pro uh, the proteasome. 
And so that means there's less total insulin binding. That means less total glucose uptake. But also there's a corruption of the signal transduction cascade, which we'll get into. So basically what I'm saying is cells become resistant to the insulin. Blood glucose and blood insulin levels increase. Then ultimately, because of feedback inhibition, pancreatic beta cells also, even in type 2 diabetes, become diminished in insulin production. Uh, this can actually result in, yeah, a destruction of the beta cells, but that's not an autoimmune disorder any longer. Basically, it's a feedback mechanism. So what you have then is inadequate insulin, insulin resistance, but still very high circulating glucose, okay? And that is then the hallmark for the prodromal phases for type 2 diabetes in humans. So you start off often with abdominal obesity that will generate multiple pathobiochemical um, alterations, which will become categorical risk factors that are linked directly to type 2 diabetes, such as insulin resistance. Along the way to type 2 diabetes, you generate metabolic syndrome, which is uh, phenotype is basically a lot of abdominal visceral fat, um, as well as insulin resistance and hypertension. You don't really get full-blown type 2 diabetes until you get a systemic dyslipidemia. And that systemic dyslipidemia is going to be a lot of our discussion for these next several lectures. But along the way, you get cardiovascular disease and all the complications of that, associated, such as atherosclerosis. And that, of course, is partially responsible for the hypertension issue. And then once you get... Um, frank type 2 diabetes, you get many other pathophysiological complications, not just uh, issues with the cardiovascular system, but also the potential for cancer, particularly in the liver and then the kidney and then various other sites in the body. Okay, so this is a very dangerous disease. And again, just consider that you have insulin receptors. Um, not all cells are insulin-dependent glucose uptake, but certainly adipose and certainly skeletal muscle. Uh, you also have insulin receptors in uh, even the liver and the central nervous system, but these aren't directly linked to glucose uptake. They're indirectly linked to it. Um, but insulin does other things besides cause glucose transporters to be, to be uh, trafficked to the to the plasma membrane for uptake of glucose. Insulin is a very complicated hormone, very complicated endocrine hormone. But ultimately, the upshot of insulin resistance is diminished glucose uptake, high circulating glucose. That's why you generate the canonical type 2 diabetes, right? High circulating glucose. Now, I'm going to jump right into a, a very quick understanding of this by doing uh, a dive into lipid metabolism. There were papers published, this goes way back now into the early 1980s, that, and this was in animal systems. <laughs> and, they were, and, and these studies were primarily looking for what is the real biochemical etiology of obesity and why did it seem to play a role 
in ultimately diabetes, right? So this was done in animal models and not just in mice. It was also done in rabbits. Okay, so some of this research was done in rabbits. And what was discovered in one particular rat study, uh, rabbit study was that overexpression of a protein called lipoprotein lipase. Don't worry, I'm going to tell you all about it in a minute. But you understand a lipoprotein lipase will take circulating lipoproteins and remove fatty acid. That's what lipases do, right? From that lipoprotein, either from triacylglycerol fractions or from cholesterol esters, to be more specific. Anyways, the overexpression of a LPL, lipoprotein lipase, will ameliorate hypertriacylglycerolemia in the rabbit model. Okay, so that means high levels of LPL decreases high tag levels in circulation from, of course, the lipoprotein fraction. And this is this is a good thing in terms of pathophysiology because hypertriacylglycerolemia is directly associated with the comorbidities linked to diabetes type 2. So increased LPL activity corrected not only hypertriacylglycerolemia, but also hypercholesterolemia, and also a great reduction in body fat accumulation when you overinduce LPL activity in rabbits. Now that might suggest just that first preliminary part of that evidence, that lipoprotein lipase is somehow very significant in mediated plasma cholesterol homeostasis and indeed what? Adipose metabolism. Indeed, overexpression of the LPL significantly suppressed also high fat diet induced obesity. And you do get this in the animal models. Um, but also insulin resistance. So now you're linking, linking a lipoprotein lipase with the obesogenic state and with insulin resistance. So you're taking that all together. It suggests that, there, that the systemic elevation of LPL expression might be useful when treating for hyperlipidemia, obesity, and insulin resistance, which is are all associated with T2D. Now, I'm going to look at a paper here real quickly in Journal of Lipid Research, published in 2015. All, all I've done so far at the beginning there was just using my old notes. But let's start looking at some manuscripts. Journal of Lipid Research 2015, I'll put the citation in the show notes, tells me the following. First of all, as I have already stated, lipoprotein lipase is a very significant enzyme activity for lipoprotein, therefore lipid metabolism systemically. You find LPL expressed in myocytes, as I mentioned, adipocytes, as I mentioned, but also macrophages. And it tends to be transported to the luminal surface, the LPL enzyme of capillary endothelial cells via another endothelial membrane protein known as GPIHBP1. Now, what is that protein? That is the glycosylphosphatidylinositol-anchored high-density lipoprotein binding protein. Okay? Now, what does that protein do? 
that, as I just alluded to, mediates the transport of the lipoprotein lipase from a basal lateral to an apical surface of endothelial cells in the capillary. Furthermore, this protein, this glycosylphosphatidylinositol anchors high-density lipoprotein binding protein, will anchor the LPL, the lipase that is, to the surface of the endothelial cells in the lumen of these blood capillaries. And what this protein also does is apparently protect the LPL by maintaining its activity so the protein doesn't turn over very rapidly as long as this binding protein is associated with it. So this is a very important component of binding proteins intracellularly and intramembranously, if I haven't brought that out in the past in other lectures. So what this protein did, this binding protein, is it plays an important role then in terms of functionality of the lipolytic processing of chylomicrons. Remember, those are the first lipoproteins that are manufactured, yes, in the small intestine. After digestion uh, and processing of dietary fats, right? So it plays an important role in lipolytic processing of chylomicrons via that LPL. And because of that, this protein, this binding protein, also controls triacylglycerol metabolism in the adipose, and therefore, because it links up the adipose, lipid homeostasis. So what, again, it, this uh, binding protein, this glycosylphosphatidylinositol anchored high-density lipoprotein binding protein will ultimately bind the chylomicron and indeed phospholipid particles directly to that membrane intracellular surface. And it also binds not just chylomicrons, but also HDL or high-density lipoprotein. So it obviously plays a role in HDL uptake in the liver. Okay, so let me get back to this discussion of this lipo, uh, lipid research paper. <clears throat> the LPL itself now, getting back to this, will hydrolyze triacylglycerol from triacylglycerol of rich lipoproteins. These include chylomicrons, very low-density lipoproteins, intermediate-density lipoproteins, and yes, even high-density lipoproteins. What happens after LPL activity? It's a hydrolysis. It releases the fatty acids. They're taken up by the tissue, uh, and they mix uh, with an, a pool of free fatty acids. Then you have a remnant lipoprotein, like a chylomicron remnant, right? And that is then removed from circulation by a receptor-mediated endocytosis. And now that's going down in the liver. So once you've removed some fatty acid from nascent chylomicrons from the small intestine, you make one passive circulation, you remove some of that fatty acid, you generate a chylomicron remnant and it binds to the liver, okay? This is all classical lipoprotein trafficking phenomenon, right? So what else I wanna say about that? The enzyme itself is expressed and regulated in a very tissue-specific manner, which I've already implicated. A another example is the activity of the, and the adipose tissue is low between 
meals, but it increases rapidly postprandially. And it's probably because it governs how lipids are processed directly from the diet, right? So it's linked to that dietary delivery of lipids directly to the adipose tissue for storage, because that's the place where most of this lipoprotein activity seems to increase after a meal. Now, besides that, the enzyme LP, uh, lipoprotein lipase um, also releases fatty acids in a form that can be further transferred to lipoproteins directly into other cells or onto the albumin. Again, these are all number of lipoproteins are non-covalent linkages of fatty acids, and the same with serum albumin. So you have serum albumin being able to traffic fatty acids because of LPL activity, as well as various subfractions of lipoproteins staying in circulation. Okay. So that means because you're mediating lipoprotein homeostasis, you're mediating metabolic homeostasis as, as well as trafficking and storing via the adipose tissue. Now, this again is primarily a discussion of dietary lipid uptake at the beginning because of the chylomicron, chylomicron remnant story. But now remember, I just told you the lipoprotein lipase activity is also geared up to, to allow for fatty acid pools to be transferred to all the other lipoproteins, meaning now you have a complete trafficking system, right? So that's a really important issue. Um, it's a little bit more detail. You have lipoproteins in circulation in the blood, uh, the lipoprotein lipase by, is then bound, as I said, to those endothelial cells like in the capillary. The fatty acids are removed from the lipoprotein and also from serum albumin. And that fatty acid associated with serum albumin could have, come, could have actually originated from depot fat, right? So again, the fatty, this is now, we're talking about the liver very specifically here. The fatty acid then can be picked up by the fatty acid binding protein. In so doing, it takes free fatty acid binding protein, which is in the liver cell cytosol, makes a fatty acyl, fatty acyl binding protein, basically lipoprotein, intracellular lipoprotein, not a covalent association. The fatty acid is then trafficked to an acyl-CoA synthase, which is associated with the outer mitochondrial membrane. Follow me along here. This is all on the hepatocyte. Once you make the acyl-CoA, you're ready for the carnitine palmitic wheel transferase activities of CPT1 and CPT2 to traffic that now fatty acid that was just transported because of the activity of lipoprotein lipase in association with that glycosyl phosphatidylinositol anchored lipid, which allow, and protein, the protein that allows for that binding of the LPL to that endothelial cell surface, allowing for all this trafficking to occur from the extra, extracellular, basically, uh, serum albumin uh, containing fatty acid, as well as the lipoproteins. Now you've got the fatty acid in the mitochondria in the liver cell, and you can carry out beta oxidation. You'll then make acetyl-CoA, and that acetyl-CoA can be metabolized in the mitochondrion of the hepatocyte, uh, ultimately being used 
to generate, depending on what the rest of the stasis of the system is, ketone bodies. This is also a way for ketogenesis, which can be largely associated with the liver, of course. Trafficking fatty acids to the liver and making ketone bodies, ketone bodies during long phases of either full-blown starvation or simple fasting, well, then you will allow you to convert depot fat fatty acids to acetoacetate beta-hydroxybutyrate, which is the ketone bodies, leave the hepatocyte, and then go into circulation and be a carbon source for, yes, the central nervous system, uh, as well as the cardiac muscle. So that's a very quick summary, but you get the idea of what LPL is doing. Now, diabetes mellitus pathophysiology, again, involves two different forms of disease, type 1 and 2. Type 1, as I've already said, is an autoimmune attack on the beta cell of the pancreas. And that's very usually <coughs> uh, first expressed in very young children. Uh, that does not lead to an obese phenotype. It, it can in some instances, but typically um, children that have type 1 diabetes, when it's diagnosed, you tend to be thinner uh, and they're prone to high levels of ketosis because of the massive production of ketone bodies. That's totally different than type 2, which combines insulin resistance and insulin deficiency ultimately. And this diabetic phenomenon of high circulating glucose. Now, type 2 diabetes is not an autoimmune disease since it's strict 2. It's later onset and almost always, but not necessarily, but almost always linked to obesity, particularly abdominal, uh, visceral fat obesity. So once you get this insulin resistance, the cells don't respond normally to insulin anymore. So that means they don't take up enough glucose. What happens then is the liver produces glucose from glycogen stores, and it's slow to replenish glycogen. So this is a real error in metabolism, right? In the skeletal muscle, there is a decrease in glycogen storage and, there, and therefore use of glucose because you don't make glycogen because you're not taking it up in the skeletal muscle. So that makes the muscle activity deficient. And in the fat or, you know, in the adipose tissue, the lipid is broken down to be used as an energy source because the body is sensing that glucose isn't being taken out of circulation. So fatty acids are deployed. This will increase fatty acids in circulation and increase triacylglycerol circulation, both of which have their own pathophenotypic biology. But also with some insulin present, you're going to get a redirecting of some of that circulating lipid to the pancreas, which will ultimately start de destroying the beta cell capability of producing insulin. So this is one of the feedback uh, results. And ketone bodies will do the same thing at the beta cell of the pancreas. And all along, you have high levels of circulating glucose and that continues to rise. This is all due to insulin resistance, okay? So it's definitely a very bad player. Insulin resistance, again, as I've said, will mediate metabolic syndrome, which will start the prodromal diabetes. Most people that are prodromal with diabetes still have about a phenotype, about 70 to 80% metabolic syndrome. 
that increases as you get type 2 diabetes, and ultimately it leads directly to cardiovascular disease. So all of this <clears throat> can be summarized, um, again, before we get into some very basic research. And this is what I'm doing here is I'm summarizing, but I'm also going to jump right back into uh, some research papers. I just wanted you to get a feel for what I, I'm going to do. I want to summarize here again, because I know I've said a lot, and I want to make sure that you're aware of where we are. So you have type 2 diabetes mellitus. It's T2DM, if you look it up in PubMed. It is itself a global problem. It's probably prevalent in humans at a level almost of 10% of all humans. Uh, that's because of the pandemic with obesity, which is basically somewhere now covering about two-thirds of the global population. Overweight or obesity used to be uh, less than one-third for the first <laughs> a couple of hundred years after the Industrial Revolution. But just in the 20th century, since the 1950s and 60s, with high calorically dense carbohydrate-containing foods, that has jumped up now to where between half to two-thirds and almost three-quarters in some countries and some continents of the population are either frankly obese, this is based on BMI values, which I know have their own fault line, um, but, uh, but it's a decent indicator, right? Um, but also, I should say that even if it's not frankly obese, which has a specific signature that we can describe, overweight population is approaching three quarters of world population. Okay? And with that, you get a higher incidence of diabetes, right? So undoubtedly, this diabetes increase is linked to the sedentary lifestyle that has also been enhanced since the mid-20th century because of the change in the kinds of jobs people do, the kind of jobs where people work all day outside, like agriculture, um, mining, <coughs> um, those, uh, construction. There are people that still do those jobs. Those people tend not to have obesity issues. But the, the number of those people that are in the population are doing that physical work has decreased. So that's the, the ratio of physical, of gainfully employed people who do physical labor all day to the total number of people in the population has not increased, but has decreased since the middle of the 20th century. So this then leads to a lot of sedentary lifestyle because a lot of these people now are not moving around a lot, not exercising a lot. And yet you have an increase in freely available, high caloric density, high carbohydrate containing foods. So this will go directly to the induction of insulin resistance, obesity, type 2 diabetes, as I just explained to you. This will lead to a complete corruption of metabolic homeostasis, you will get a dysfunction of glycolysis, um, fatty acid oxidation, triacylglycerol metabolism, as we just mentioned here. You'll also get a corruption of cholesterol metabolism, including cholesterologenesis. And 
with that, um, bioenergetic interruptions associated with tri, uh, carboxylic acid, associated buildup of NADH to NAD ratios. This can lead further to an increase in gluconeogenesis in, for example, the liver. So the liver will start producing more glucose and less glycogen storage. At the same time, there's high levels of circulating glucose and now diminishing levels of high circulating insulin, insulin because of now the movement into deeper levels of the morbidity and pathophysiology of the diabetes, okay? So there have been a complete blossoming, as you might guess, you may be aware of this, of pharmaceuticals that have been directed to control dyslipidemia, lipotoxicity, lipoprotein metabolism, um, as well as to uh, um, interrupt or corrupt purposely the electron transport chain. And in so doing, the idea is to diminish the amount of ATP made. And the amount of ATP made, for example, in the liver will diminish if you decrease that ATP concentration, gluconeogenesis. This is how drugs like metformin work, functioning at the level of complex one in the electron transport chain. I've mentioned this many times, but I just want to introduce it here because now we're fully into diabetes. I'm going to stop here because my time is almost up. Don't worry. Lecture two will come up quickly, and we're going to continue to talk about type 2 diabetes. This is Dr. Dan Guerra from uh, Authentic Biochemistry Studios, and the date is really wonderful. It's 2-22-22. Uh, so a lot of even numbers there. Um, and this is me from the Inland Pacific Northwest saying bye for now.